Well, good morning. Uh, if we've not met before, welcome to GBC. My name's Justin. I'm a student pastor here. Um, I have the privilege of preaching God's word to us this morning. And we do this because we are convinced that the Bible is how God speaks to us. And by it, do we come to know God and what he has done, and by it, we are changed and we are grown into who he has made us to be. Uh, We are in the second week of our series in the book of Haggai, so if you have your Bible with you, please would you turn with me to chapter 1. And we will be this morning paying particular focus on verses 12 through 15, uh, but for the sake of context and to really help us appreciate these verses this morning, we're going to read all of chapter 1, beginning from verse 1. So please follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen, and then after I read, I will pray, and then we will hear what God has to say to us this morning. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Thank you that you speak clearly to us through it and that you show 
us, your son, Jesus, through it so that we may draw near to you. So please, would you send your spirit amongst us to open our hearts and minds and to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel and that we would respond in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Consider your ways. These were the words that were left ringing in the ears of the people of Israel after Haggai brought the word of the Lord to them. Consider your ways, Israel. How on earth can you go build yourselves your own fancy houses when the house of the Lord still lays in ruin? God was the one who was kind and gracious to bring you back from the land of exile. And now, because you're afraid of the local authorities and because you are selfish, you've been too quick to neglect the place where the presence of the Lord would dwell in your midst. How on earth can you be content to dwell in the promised land but not restore the very place that you are to worship the God who brought you there to begin with? Consider your ways, Israel. It's a harsh word from Haggai, isn't it? I don't know how kindly that you would take to me if I got up here and started blatantly questioning your lifestyle and your actions. Um, Although I was thinking maybe that's often what we do as preachers. Um, But Old Testament prophets, they certainly had a difficult job in calling the nation of Israel to repentance. And it might be harsh, but at the same time, how necessary is it? And more than that, actually, how loving is it from God Because what's the alternative? For God to not send Haggai at all and to just continue to let the people do what they're doing? And the people would be back in exile soon enough, no doubt. But instead, God in his kindness, he sends his messenger with his message, calls them to repent and calls them to begin work on rebuilding the temple so that he might dwell in their midst once again and that they can enjoy his presence and worship him rightly. Consider your ways. It might sound harsh, but it's actually a message of love. Now, if you were to read pretty much any of the other Old Testament prophets, it would be quite easy, I think, to guess the people's response to Haggai's message. Uh, Some other responses uh, that we find in the Old Testament. Are you kidding me, Jeremiah? Elijah, there is no way that we're doing that. We don't believe you, Amos. Go and preach somewhere else. Israel, they have a notorious history of rejecting God's chosen messenger because they all typically come preaching the same message. Repent. Consider your ways. Turn back to the one true living God and give up your selfish, sinful, idolatrous ways. But something truly miraculous happens here in Haggai instead. Look with me at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. 
they actually obey God. They actually consider their ways. They actually hear the voice of the Lord and they don't dismiss it, but instead they take it to heart. They receive God's word with soft hearts instead of hard, with opened eyes instead of blind. In obedience to God's word, Israel, they consider their ways and they find themselves lacking. They can see how they have spurned the God who loves them and who brought them back from exile by selfishly living for themselves. And so they feared the Lord. The word of God, working in the hearts of those who are willing to hear it, will produce the fear of the Lord. Um, now, Ulrich, he has touched on this for us already this morning. The fear of the Lord, it, it might be a confusing phrase to us modern readers of God's word, because to have fear of someone or of something is literally just to be afraid of it, right? Uh, again, as Ulrich mentioned, you might have heard that the fear of the Lord maybe is about more having respect for God or being in awe of him, which it's not a bad way of understanding it, but I think that there's a fuller way which can bring such beauty and meaning to it. So here's a simple working definition for us to consider. The fear of the Lord is to be utterly terrified of God and at the same time delighting in him. Are you confused? You should be. <laughs> you might be wondering, Justin, how can this be? And I'm really glad that you asked. So let me share with you what I think is a helpful little illustration um, that we've actually also been considering this term uh, at youth as we're going through the, the book of Proverbs. So here's, uh, here's my little illustration. Uh, this, this is my daughter Zara, my youngest one. Uh, that's her eating some mulberries from the neighbor's tree. Uh, yes, she is indeed the cutest, most sweetest and intelligent little two-year-old that you'll ever meet. Um, and so, if you are interested in arranging a marriage with your two-year-old son, uh, the dowry price is set at about 10 million at the moment. I've got one bidder over here. Anyone else? Yeah. Now, I'm going to say something awful, but bear with me. Without too much effort, with my strength and power, I could literally break and crush Zara and destroy her. She would have zero chance to defend herself, wouldn't she? Her strength, it doesn't even compare to mine. And so, she should be utterly terrified of me. But I don't use my strength and my power to do that, do I? What do I do instead? Well, I bend down. I pick her up in my arms and I pull her in close and I kiss her and I cuddle her and shower her in love. Do you see how I'm using that exact same strength that could destroy her, but instead I use it for her good? And she delights in it, doesn't she? It makes her feel safe and loved and protected and she takes joy and she takes refuge in the comfort of my arms.
And I think this is something, doesn't get to all of it, but it's something of how we ought to understand the fear of the Lord. In this little phrase is bound up with the idea of us being utterly terrified of God, while at the same time delighting in Him. And we ought to be terrified of God because of just how awesome He is in His glory and in his holiness, and his might, and his power, and his justice. It is truly a fearful thing for sinners to be in the hands of a righteously angry God. How is it that Isaiah reacted to seeing the glory of the Lord fill the temple? He cried out, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of an unclean people. What about Moses, God's chosen servant? In all the miraculous works which God did through him, even Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. And even still, God only showed a fraction of his glory, which made Moses' face shine so bright that no Israelite would even dare to look at it. What about John, John the Beloved? John who laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. What did he do when he saw the risen and reigning Lord Jesus in all of his glory? He fell at his feet as though dead. He didn't run up to him and give him a hug. Jesus, it's been so long. He dared not take another step and he fell prostrate before the Lord Almighty. May we not assume to be any different from these mighty men of faith. We ought to be truly terrified of the Lord. His strength, his power and his holiness and his glory are not possibly able to be tamed. So it's foolish for us to be indifferent to them. But at the same time, we delight in our God who has set his covenant love upon us as his people. God has not chosen us to, uh, chosen to destroy us in his holiness and in his justice and righteousness, but instead has used his strength and his might to pick us up and to welcome us into his arms. He showered us in his love and in his grace, and in that do we deeply delight in him. This delight, it's not at odds with the fear of the Lord. It is, in fact, at the heart of fearing the Lord. Uh, Perhaps this is what we mean when we say that, that we're reverent of him. But delighting, it's so much more than just reverence, isn't it? We can be reverent at funerals or reverent in a library. But we're not just to revere God. We're to delight in him to know the sweetness of his embrace, to feel safe and loved in his arms. This is our God, friends, who has poured out his love on us because he poured out his anger on Jesus who stood in our place. And all we must do is listen to him hear him speak his word to us and respond in the fear of the Lord.
We are to see him for who he is in all of his power, all of his might, all of his glory, all of his holiness, and tremble before him. But then also let your heart sing as you know the warmth of his embrace, as he lavishes his love and his mercy on you in Christ. This was Israel's response to hearing the voice of the Lord. And considering their ways, they feared the Lord. And in the fear of the Lord, they rightly ordered their lives and responded in faith and repentance. The fear of the Lord, it will always lead us to rightly order our lives and move us to those things, to faith and repentance. And so, if you hear the voice of the Lord, which, by the way, you are right now in his word, do not harden your hearts, but instead truly listen to him. Consider your ways and fear the Lord. Fear him and delight in him. Turn to him in faith and repentance Rightly order your ways and walk in obedience before him. Because he is holy and because he has set his love on you in Christ. And so it is to his covenant people whom he has set his love upon that we see in verses 13 and 14 two deeply precious gifts that will strengthen us in our obedience to him. We see the promise of the Lord and the provision of the Lord. So firstly, let's consider the promise of the Lord. Uh, Now in chapters 4, 5 and 6 in the book of Ezra, we actually read a fuller account of the rebuilding of the temple um, after their return from exile. And what we see is that construction stopped not only because the people were selfish in building themselves houses, Um, But there was actually also some significant opposition from non-Jewish locals. We read this in Ezra chapter 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so the remnant of the people, you could imagine, would have been quite afraid of the consequences of continuing work on the house of the Lord. Uh, It was much safer, much more convenient for them to spend their time sorting out their own home renovation projects. But having obeyed the voice of the Lord, and having considered their ways, and having feared the Lord, surely now they were ready, right, to get stuck into rebuilding the temple, Perhaps not. In fact, I I don't think that's the case because what God knew that they needed still was a promise, which we see in verse 13. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Uh, Think about it for a moment. Let's imagine what it might have been like to be one of the remnant of the people who has just returned from exile. Uh, You might have been a young teenager when you were dragged away from your home by a ferocious army. 
Uh, You saw them kill your parents. You saw them burn your house to the ground. You were forced to grow up in a land where they did not speak your language. You were treated poorly. You were humiliated as one of many who were considered the spoils of war. The culture and the heritage that you were born into and raised in gets stripped away from you in each passing year that you're in exile. Then, more than 30 years later, you start hearing whispers in your neighbourhood that the new king is letting people return to the land. You just might get to go home now. People start returning, but you haven't yet gotten the opportunity. Only a select few get to go. But then, the day finally comes. You're free now to return to your beloved home. And so you make the long journey back, with memories flooding back of all the atrocities that you witnessed as you see familiar buildings that were just a burnt shell of what they once were. You arrive home, or at least to the land which once had your home on it, and a great amount of both sadness and joy fills your heart as you begin this new chapter and begin work on recreating your life where you belong. And part of that is helping with the work on the temple. You give diligently of your time, helping lay the foundations of it. And then word comes from your supervisor. Tools down, everyone. Why? Well, because if you were to continue building, you were at risk of being squashed like a bug once again in your homeland at best being dragged back into Israel, uh, into exile, but more likely the reality would be that you would lose your life. So there's no small stakes, are there? So you keep your head down and you just get to work on building your own house, which is safe, right? means you get to stay in the land, you get to keep your life. But time goes by, The work remains unfinished on the temple, and you get comfortable. Your house gets bigger, your crops are growing, but the temple of the Lord remains as an empty poured slab. Now, can you imagine the feeling of dread and terror that comes over you when you realize the error of your ways, but that what God is calling you to do just might cost you your life. What do you think you might need to hear in that moment? I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. Do not be afraid because I am with you in this very work. Do not be afraid, for I am the Lord over all kings and rulers. Yes, even the very ones who brought you into exile in the first place. I am the one who moved them to take you to exile. I am the one who allowed you to come back. I am with you, so do not fear. I will be with you as your protector and as your provider in all of your efforts in obedience of the rebuilding of my house. What an awesome promise. God knew exactly what 
Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant of the people needed to hear. Because you see, this is exactly what the attacks of the enemy do to us so often, doesn't it? They isolate us. They make us feel alone. They make us question the goodness of God. They make us desert our efforts at obedience all too quickly. But the promise of the Lord to his people is sweet and it is comforting and it gives us great assurance. I am with you. Uh, Tim rightly showed us last week how the main application of Haggai for us as new covenant believers today, it's, it's not a building project, right? It isn't us rebuilding a physical sanctuary. No, the new temple of the Lord is the people of the Lord. That's what we, so, uh, that's what we saw so wonderfully in Ephesians, wasn't it? The people of God are the dwelling place of God. And so for us to be involved in the work of building the temple today, it simply boils down to two things, evangelism and discipleship. We take the gospel to people who don't know Christ and then the Spirit unites them to the body of Christ through faith and the house of the Lord grows, one person at a time into a great multitude of people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And now having been united to Christ by faith and through the power of the Spirit, we disciple people. And they grow and they mature and the house of the Lord is strengthened as we grow up into Christ who is the head. And yet what endless challenges that we will face as we work on those things. Rejection, persecution, opposition, Temptation, conflict, resistance, antagonism, hostility, anger, frustration, disappointment. It is, it's, it's no wonder that the trend of modern Christianity is to sit back and to watch others get to work on building the house of the Lord. To spectate, to sit back comfortably, to be content with building your own house. It's too easy to move towards what is safe, towards what is comfortable, and to avoid any possibility of having to face those challenges. But let us hear the words of the Lord this morning, church. I am with you. He is with us. The Lord Almighty, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the sovereign one who holds all things in his hands, the one who has purchased us with his own blood, the one who will conquer every enemy and place them under his feet. He is with us. So let this truth deeply comfort you this morning. Let it give all of us great assurance and confidence and boldness as we get to work on building the house of the Lord. It is what these words are here for in Scripture, to give the people of God comfort and assurance and strength for the task that's at hand. So do not harden your hearts right now. Do not brush off this word from God this morning. Receive it gladly 
and let it bring relief from your fears and your disappointments. Because Christ Jesus lives, because he is with us, we can face tomorrow, and more than that, we can walk in all the good works that he has created us for. This promise from God, it's, it's so sweet and so comforting, isn't it? But the passage, it doesn't stop there. There's a second great truth that we can receive as we're called to build the house of the Lord. And that's this, the provision of the Lord. Uh, what does he provide? Look with me to verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. What does the Lord do? He provides the very energy that we need to get to work. That's what it is uh, meant there by the Lord when he says that he stirred up the spirit of the people. And by that I don't mean uh, physical energy, um, though there's no doubt the Lord can provide that when you ask for it, but what this speaks of is God giving us the very will, the internal resolve, the, the spiritual inertia for us to get to work. Uh, perhaps a more helpful translation of that stirred up is something like to wake up. The Lord, literally, he shook Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant of the people. He shook them out of their slumber. He animates them. He gives them life and desire and the fervor to get to work. The Lord, he provides for his people with the very means to do the things which he has commanded them to do. And I think I have shared this with you before, but my leaders and I, we've actually been experiencing this um, in such profound ways over the last few years. Uh, every Friday night, we make sure we arrive with enough time to sit before the Lord and to come to Him in prayer. And part of what we seek from Him is that He would give us what we need to serve our teens faithfully that night. Uh, I don't think that we've ever used the term stir up, maybe... Maybe we have, but the essence of our prayers is exactly that. And at the end of every night, we, we look back and we praise God for the ways in which he has answered those prayers for us. Friends, the Lord, he loves to stir up the spirit of his people, to animate them towards that which he created us for. He does. He, he loves it. It's... It's no hassle to God. It's not a working frustration for him. He's not thinking, oh, seriously, do you guys need this again? No, he's so full of life and power and grace and love and he's so generous and so kind and so patient that it's actually in his very nature to desire, to stir our spirits and to equip us and to give us all that we need to do the work that he's called us to do. This uh, is, in fact, the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. We can see why Jesus said that it was better for him to depart so that he and the Father could send the Spirit to be with us. The Holy Spirit, he stirs up our spirit. 
so that we desire what God desires, so that we press into what he has called us to do, so that we are woken up from our slumber and get to work. And all we need to do is ask. That's it. You don't need to get your life sorted first before asking God for his help. You don't need to have everything together. You don't need to be the perfect Christian to ask that God would work in your life in this way. Just come to Christ and ask him to stir up your spirit. Ask him to wake you up, to give you desires for obedience, for engaging in building the house of the Lord. And he will more than happily provide it. As you hear his words of comfort, knowing that he is with you, assured of his grace and love towards you, don't stop there. Ask him to give you all that you need to walk in obedience to him. And so can you see how good our God is? He does not merely command us to do something and then threaten us with a big stick. No, he loves his children so dearly that he gives us all that we need. Uh, St. Augustine, he's perhaps the most influential Christian um, apart from the Apostle Paul in church history. Uh, He lived in the fourth century and one of the most wonderful prayers that he prayed uh, says this. Give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. It's such a wonderful prayer that shows immense faith and trust in God who is all-powerful and sovereign over the human heart and at the same time is so gracious and so kind to give us what we need to walk in his sovereign plans. Not as puppets on a string, but by his grace, being fully animated, overcoming the power of sin in our hearts and minds and receiving all that we need to be all that he has created us to be. We serve such a good God, church. A God whom we rightfully should fall prostrate before in terror, while at the same time delighting in. A God who promises to always be with us. A God who provides us with all that we need. So let's get to work. And let's do that by coming to our good God in prayer. Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you and thank you for the great promise that you are with us. May we find great comfort in knowing that you are the one who is working and willing in us for your good pleasure and that you are bringing about your good plans and purposes through us, your church. Help us to keep trusting in your Son, who is the one building the church, 
and in our union with him by the Spirit, that we would delight in joining him in his work. Please would you stir up our hearts, Lord, that we would be animated for the work of building your temple. Would you give us passions and desires that are in line with your will, and would you please give us strength and opportunity to pursue them? Would you please give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.